Fantastic. <laughs> Perfect timing. Well, good afternoon and thank you all for being here today. Uh, many of you have been here since this morning, some of you join us only now. Uh, for those people that join us only now, I am Daniel Franchini and I am the convener of Oxford Transitional Justice Research. Uh, now, since many of you have heard my presentation this morning, I will not go into too much detail about who we are, what we do, but if you don't know us, and at this point this is really bad, but if you don't know us, please check out our website where you can find all uh, our recent activities and the future activities. Uh, whether you know it or not, you happen to join us in a very festive day, because OTGR is turning 10 today, and we decided to celebrate this milestone by organizing this day full of events. Uh, many of you have been here since this morning engaging in a workshop that it was meant essentially to reflect on broader issues of what it means today to do transitional justice research and how this has changed in the past 10 years and how can this have an impact on transitional justice practice. Uh, my impression, and I am clearly biased when I say this, is that so far it's been a success. I am extremely happy to see how this has unfolded, but in order to complete such a perfect day, we have the privilege of having a very distinguished guest with us today. Uh, we are honored to have with us uh, Mr. Pablo de Greif, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion of Truth, Justice, Reparations and Guarantees of No Recurrence. Now, if you're like me, you will think of Mr. De Grave as a sort of rock star in transitional justice research. My wife doesn't think that. <laughs> <laughs> My kids even. <laughs> but we, well, we can hardly, we can hardly hide our excitement to have you here today, and um, and the reason why Pablo has always been our first choice since day one when we started thinking about this term is that he is in a rare, if not unique, position in the world of transitional justice, be, since he excelled both in academia and practice, and contributed fundamentally to the development of transitional justice in both areas. And since one of the main themes of the day is precisely this, how to bridge this gap that many of us feel between the research that many of us are doing here and the practice of TJ, uh, with the caveat not to be exploited in our research. And, uh, with that said, we are very looking forward to hearing what Pablo has to say about this because we cannot think of a more qualified person to say something about what we called applied transitional justice research. Just a few words for, I think, the very few of you that don't know Mr. De Greif. Uh, Pablo De Greif has been the UN Special Rapporteur since 2012. Since 2015, he's also the director of the Transitional Justice Program at the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at the School of Law of New York University. Many of us got to know Pablo through his role between 2001 and 2014 as the director of research at the International Center for Transitional Justice. Um, he has long held various academic positions and taught in the most prestigious, prestigious universities, including EUI, uh, Yale, Harvard, Columbia, and the list goes on. Uh, Mr. De Graeff has also published extensively on transitions to democracy, democratic theory, and relationship between morality, politics, and the law. He is on the board of editors of the International Journal of Transitional Justice, and he has written some fundamental contributions in this area, including theorizing transitional justice, uh, just justice and social integration, and the role of cultural interventions in transitional justice processes. The list goes on, but I think 
we all look forward to hearing from him rather than from myself. I just remind you that uh, Mr. De Graeff will speak for about 45 minutes and uh, a collective discussion will follow both with the facilitator of today, uh, today's workshop, so we will try to bring in what we learned from the collective discussion, and um, the presentation will be recorded but not the Q&A, so please feel free to intervene even if you were not part of the workshop today. And having said that, please finally join me in thanking Pablo de Greve for being with us today. Thank you very much, Daniel, for an extraordinarily uh, generous introduction of the sort that almost guarantees that you will be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I want to bring to mind uh, once I was in an academic discussion in Berlin with a very, very aggressive uh, group of academics uh, criticizing uh, the new transitional justice industry. And uh, the person who was uh, introducing me for the sake of setting the tone once the transitional justice industry was <laughs> mentioned, he said, and you are the CEO. <laughs> and, he did, and he did not mean this as praise. So I am particularly grateful for uh, the introduction. Look, I would like to make this as informal as possible and at the same time uh, as, as substantive as uh, possible. Let me say a few things about uh, the very apt choice that was uh, chosen as the title of the talk on the convergence between theory and practice, how to bridge the gap between academic world and uh, practical uh, work in the transitional justice arena. This, as it turns out, has been at the heart of my interest and, in fact, in many ways what drove me to transitional justice as a field in the first place 20 years ago. <coughs> in my background, as uh, Daniel mentioned, is in academics. I was a political theorist, a thought political theory all my life. And I was very interested in the uh, links between normative theorizing on the one hand and empirical data and empirical constraints on the other hand. I think that establishing the proper links between those two is fundamental both for good theorizing. Theory needs the questions that emerge from the effort to accomplish real <coughs> results in the world. <coughs> and therefore, I think that it is very difficult to do very useful, very good theory very complicated uh, theory that avoids, uh, for example, sociological night uh, and that becomes a starry-eyed uh, normativism without exposing the theory to the questions and the constraints that emerge uh, from the real world. And at the same time, I think that it is uh, very difficult to do serious policy work in justice-related areas without having some understanding of the role that normative considerations, including people's own understanding <coughs> of justice and what justice calls for. So the links, I am absolutely convinced, uh, are very important. And uh, as a practical detail, I don't know what uh, your life circumstances are, but uh, in a university setting, there are lots of people that are thinking about the next steps. I am totally convinced about the usefulness of 
uh, higher degrees. And I'm convinced about the usefulness of higher degrees, not just as stepping stones uh, to an academic uh, career. In many ways, as uh, Daniel mentioned, uh, I have had both. I am totally convinced about the usefulness of higher uh, uh, degrees, <coughs> even for non-academic uh, jobs. I know that the world, professionally speaking, is structured more or less on two separate tracks. People that get PhDs end up teaching for the most part. People that uh, do master's degrees or that very early on start in the domain of practice for the most part end up doing practice. But I think that this is a sort of outmoded model that we should contribute uh, to eroding and that the collaboration between academic uh, centers and uh, <coughs> people, uh, organizations and individuals that are interested in the linkages between theory and practice should get much more help and that over time it is very likely that they will be in a much better position uh, than they are now. Should I speak uh, into this for the... Uh, we can turn it off. Ah, what, no, I'm fine, uh, but if you can hear me in the back, I'm fine uh, with this. <coughs> uh, so that uh, as a sort of uh, stimulus for you uh, to keep uh, those of you who have an interest in both practice and academic work, uh, I would like to start with a very, very generous uh, uh, incentive to keep on doing it. It is possible, it will be important, it is increasingly useful. Now, I should of course not uh, proceed. I thanked uh, Daniel for the very kind introduction, but of course I would like to give, uh, uh, express my gratitude for the invitation, not just uh, for the kind uh, reception. I am delighted to be here. I am delighted to help celebrate the anniversary of uh, the network for reasons that are related to what I just said uh, about uh, the importance of linking theory and practice. I think that networks are very important. I will add a couple of reasons to praise networks in general uh, uh, later on. Uh, but I think that the Oxford network has been particularly important in providing an incentive for other networks uh, to develop. And of course, the work that the network itself has incentivized has been very important for the field of transitional justice. So thank you very much for inviting me to participate in the celebration. I want to congratulate people who uh, have taken a long-term interest in establishing, running the, the network, and in this case now the two of you, but Phil Clark, of course, was a long time a member of this, so thank you very much uh, for this and it's a real uh, privilege and an honor to be here. Now on uh, uh, substance, <coughs> on, well, preserving the link, uh, the thematic uh, area about uh, relations between uh, theory and practice. I would like to start by making two general remarks about uh, huge gaps in the transitional justice field that I think could be filled uh, uh, by more academic uh, work. First, uh, I have long argued, uh, and of course uh, I am not being original about this because uh, anyone who knows anything about the field they would realize uh, <coughs> that this is the case. Transitional justice is still a hugely under-theorized uh, uh, area. 
And one of the obvious ways of seeing the under-theorized nature of the field is by focusing on two fundamental sets of questions. First, a boundary question. What does transitional justice include? What does it exclude? There is a question about the scope of transitional justice, which in fact rages today much more so than 10 or 15 years ago, for which I do not think uh, there are either convincing uh, 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 responses, except one that I offered. <laughs> uh, no, really, I think that there is very little debate, formal debate, uh, about this. And yes, I have offered one, but I have always been uh, very, very sympathetic towards uh, methodological pluralism. So a field that has one uh, theoretical position, even if the theoretical position is brilliant, which uh, I don't presume mine is, is not uh, as fully developed uh, in terms of theory as it should be. Theoretical contestation is an important part uh, of academic activity. We know that. Uh, Ptolemaic uh, physics ruled physics uh, for centuries, but that was not such a great position for physics uh, to be in. It was much better when this became a matter of uh, theoretical contestation. So the boundary question is one way of noticing why the field needs more theory than it has got up to this point. The second related a set of questions that makes you realize how under-theorized the field is, is that some of the basic questions around the field, including, surprisingly, what's its very point? Why do we do transitional justice? Has, again, not received uh, a sufficiently persuasive answer. Not one produced uh, after the process of uh, theoretical contestation that I was referring <coughs> to before. And therefore, when you see the list uh, of aims that transitional justice uh, is usually associated with, you would think uh, that this is the policy equivalent of a magic potion, <laughs> that it is good uh, to resolve uh, all sorts of illnesses, that it is uh, a sort of magic universal policy tool that not only resolves all sorts of difficulties, but that it resolves all sorts of difficulties regardless of the context in which it is applied. But that, of course, is pure folly. We know that just as uh, there is no such thing as uh, a universal cure for all sorts of illnesses, as we notwithstanding. We know that there is no such thing as a universal policy tool, one that resolves all sorts of uh, difficulties and that can be applied equally in all sorts of contexts. So it's not just this question about uh, the ends of transitional justice that remains uh, still open and up for grabs. We have no persuasive account of how transitional justice is supposed to achieve whatever of the uh, manifold ends that it is usually attributed to it. There are very few accounts that try to establish the implementation of each of the transitional justice tools 
and the wonderful aims that are attributed to them. So just to illustrate, for example, perhaps one of the most common stories in transition justice is that more truth-telling strengthens the rule of law. Sounds great, intuitively appealing, even in some ways intuitively plausible, but how? How does that work? How does the production <coughs> of words, for example, in a truth-telling report, lead to the outcome in question, the strengthening of the rule of law? So there are very, very few accounts of this sort of relationship. And again, it seems to me that this is uh, an area which is fit both uh, for theorizing and generally for more academic work. Since Aristotle, the aim of theory has been to establish links between phenomena that caused uh, some puzzlement. This is exactly where we are with respect to transitional justice. What is the relationship, for example, between transitional justice and reconciliation? What is the relationship between transitional justice and democratization? What is the relationship between transitional justice and justice in general? However you see fit to define that abstract notion. So when I think about areas of possible collaboration between people that do academic work and people that do practical work, these two general areas seem to me to be the primary, most general candidates for this sort of collaboration. Uh, <coughs> and I have to say that most of the work there remains to be done. The obscurity about uh, these two sets of questions, of course, is not uh, the responsibility of transitional justice work uh, alone. We do have some, and I will get back uh, to it. Uh, some of the difficulties, for example, are not completely separate from what was taking place in the domain of uh, humanities, but even of uh, social sciences. Now, when people talk about uh, the impact of transitional justice, something else about which we have only the dimmest of idea of how to do effectively. Uh, this is, of course, not divorced from, uh, for example, the turn towards quantification in the social sciences, which was really not a turn towards explanation, but a turn towards the finding of correlations. And if you think about the nature of the literature in transitional justice, it is heavily dominated by two sorts uh, of accounts. Normative accounts usually produced uh, by lawyers, for example, reminding people of relevant legal obligations, <coughs> uh, interpreting existing legal obligations so that their connection with the transitional justice becomes more apparent. So in a certain sense, very normative sort of literature. And on the other hand, literature produced much more in an ethnographic spirit, in a descriptive spirit. This is how things worked in different transitional justice processes. This is how they worked in Argentina. This is how they worked in Chile. 
how they worked uh, in Rwanda. So I am not at all trying to diminish the importance of those kinds uh, of work, but what I am trying to point to is that what is distinctly missing is not more normative work or more descriptive work, but more explanatory work. How is it that transitional justice interventions are supposed uh, to work? What links inputs and outputs? And I think that, uh, again, this is not just uh, the fault of transitional justice work. Uh, social scientists have lost the ability to think primarily <coughs> in explanatory work because so much social science work is now quantitative correlational work rather than explanatory work. So again, this is not just a problem that affects uh, transitional justice, except that at a practical level, it does affect us with a bit of a vengeance. And you may think that this is too pedestrian a consideration, but the future of the field depends to a large extent on this. We should not forget that this is a field that depends overwhelmingly on donor support. We should not forget that donors are increasingly under pressure to talk about the impact of whatever it is that they support, that as a consequence, we are under pressure to talk intelligently about the impact of transitional justice work, and that, I hope that my Americanized English doesn't lead to an offense here, I think that we are cracked <laughs> at uh, talking about the impact of transitional justice work at present that we really do not know how to do this. That when donors ask us, so what do you expect to accomplish in a two to three year typical cycle of donor support, the accounts that we, for the most part, give are absolutely horrendous accounts. Either completely unrealistic, we are going to transform uh, the social reality <laughs> of the country that we are working, or we are just going to organize a, se a, set, a set of meetings and capacity building sessions, and neither, of course, uh, will sustain donor support <coughs> for the next 15 years in an area which we all ought to be much more modest than we have been up to this point is not an area that produces short-term gains. It's incredibly difficult uh, to achieve uh, short-term gains uh, in uh, the transitional justice work. So uh, again, to summarize, this is uh, an invitation to uh, do much more work uh, on theorizing transitional justice, theorizing transitional justice work also in an intelligent way, you know, in a way that, for example, uh, following the very well-known exegetical principles, tries to make the best sense out of the practice. You know, it's uh, part of uh, the reconstructive spirit, uh, theoretically, or to, be, to explain what it is that we are trying to accomplish to do so in a way that avoids both uh, sociological naivete and uh, starry-eyed uh, normativism, in a way that provides some guidance that doesn't lose altogether 
a critical edge so that we can apply the criteria that we develop in order <coughs> to establish some basic distinctions between legitimate transitional justice efforts and the sham efforts. And also, in a way, I would like to say, in order to avoid uh, the sociological naivete and the pure descriptivism, to which I think normativism almost inevitably leads in a way that is mindful of at least very basic notions of uh, functional analysis. Look, all of us, I think, uh, that get into justice-related work uh, have the aspiration to make the world better. So more radically than others, but I think that the motivation is uh, shared. We would like to be the world slightly better than we found it. Of course, this is uh, both uh, uh, an end that I share and that has motivated a bit of my life. Parenthetically, I had a conversation with my eight-year-old son at one point, and I was telling him this, no? I think it's important to try to leave uh, the world a little better than you found it. And he said, if you're going to start with that, talk with my younger brother. I have my plans. <laughs> I said, what kind of plans do you have? And he said, I want to be a race car driver. <laughs> but back to the point. So we all share this. We all share the idea that it would be good uh, to do it. But again, this is not uh, simply a matter of uh, voluntarism. No? It's not a question of exercising uh, your willpower in a strong enough sense. It is also a question of being able to bridge the gap between norm and reality. And again, I'm sorry to abuse the word, we are also proud uh, of this in the human rights uh, and justice-related areas. We are very good at describing end states. We are terrible at thinking about alternatives of how to get us from here to there. And that means that in a moment in history in which people are extraordinarily <coughs> suspicious of human rights, I think that we pay a huge price for sounding so uninterested and so incompetent with respect to policy-making decisions because it makes us sound indifferent to evidence and indifferent to constraints. And by the way, this is one way of characterizing fundamentalism. Fundamentalism in all areas is characterized by indifference to evidence and indifference to constraints. <coughs> so there is a sort of well-meaning fundamentalism in the human rights world and in the transitional justice world that I think it is very important for us uh, to overcome. And again, this is not irrelevant uh, to the question about the links between theory and practice. Now, it does have a huge implication. I have given an argument in praise of academics becoming more involved in uh, uh, transitional justice work. Of course, there are good and bad ways of trying to establish uh, those uh, linkages. It is very common 
to think about the role of the academic as providing policy solutions to people that are engaged in practice. In my experience, this has rarely ever worked. Academics are in a notoriously poor position to provide policy solutions. They have very little understanding of local context, very little experience with real-life political constraints. They are excellent at articulating abstract, legal, formal solutions to practical problems, but in most contexts, those rarely work. So I think that the relationship between academic research and policy making has to be thought, and that it has to be rethought in a much more egalitarian sort of way. And one that incidentally leads to a better division of labor and to a better use of competitive uh, uh, advantages, of, of relative uh, competitive uh, advantages. In my experience, the best interactions between uh, academic work uh, and uh, practical policy issues has to do when, when academics try to respond not so much to the practical dimensions of questions that emerge from the ground and that need to be resolved when policymakers are trying to come up with solutions to pressing problems. They come when the academics set their minds to thinking about the consequences that follow from the manifold uh, uh, relationships that, have, uh, that emerge from efforts to give uh, complex answers to complex uh, questions. So I think that, for example, a good model for thinking about uh, uh, the relationship between theory and practice <coughs> in this domain is a certain way of doing constitutional law, a constitutional theory. A constitutional theorist, for example, is not one that tries to provide a constitutional answer to every question that comes about, but rather someone that, again, tries to make sense of ongoing con constitutional practice, tries to clarify what are the consequences of the commitments that follow from the fact that we have already accepted a commitment to basic constitutional principles, tries to provide the guidance that follows from those commitments to the extension of constitutional practice to a new set of questions that perhaps have never been considered before. And that means that he or she tries to do this in a way that is practically relevant provide some guidance about uh, how to proceed, and at the same time, that is uh, completely realistic about uh, the existing constraints, knowing that in constitutional practice you are never starting from scratch, but always working within a particular structure that is made not only by the Constitution, <coughs> but by presidential judgments, by ongoing judicial commitments, ongoing existing judicial constraints, etc., etc. 
So that is one way of thinking about uh, the relationship between a human rights, justice-related work, including transitional justice work, uh, and uh, constitutional practice. So I have mentioned two uh, broad areas in which I think that the relationship uh, can be strengthened. Now, I would like to mention uh, a few uh, much more contextual factors that should lead us to think about a closer relationship between uh, uh, academic work, academic research, uh, and uh, practical work. All of them having to do with uh, more or less the current state of the world, and therefore I will be very brief. I think that in the human rights world, the uh, justice-related world, and of course transitional justice world, uh, we face uh, an overarching challenge about what to do with the selectivity with which international law is invariably applied. I have often told my team in Geneva, such as it is, that if one had totally unconstrained possibilities in the transitional justice world to pay attention to serious unredressed human rights violations, the subject matter of the mandate. There is absolutely no question in my mind that the top priorities would be China, the Soviet Union, and the United States. Those are three countries that have very serious and redressed human rights violations in the past, that have, of course, huge spillover effects that if you could demonstrate practice in improving the degree of redress of the violations for which they are responsible, you could, of course, give a huge boost to strengthening the field. And despite the fact that I have requested visits, I have one year in the mandate. I am, of course, not holding my breath that any of the three countries are going to accept my official business. And this is a very, very small scale example of the sort of selectivity that is characteristic of work in this area. The Chinese delegation, both to the Human Rights Council and to the General Assembly, for example, every time that I present a report, ask for the floor, and every time they make an expression of agreement with me about the importance of history education. <laughs> How is this possible? So of course I appreciate all the support uh, that I can get, but uh, I have always found it puzzling that this is the point with which China uh, chooses to agree with me. I have interacted both uh, with uh, Russia and with the US, uh, officially from the standpoint of the mandate, uh, but the results are not much more positive than the story that I just told uh, about you. So I think that this is a very serious issue, and it affects everyone, and of course, at this moment, needless to say, and I have to say since uh, Guantanamo, Work in human rights in my area has become significantly more difficult because every country where I say 
group, it is important to be the, with the passive and not validations. They say, but the US is doing it. <laughs> and they are ignoring the work that you would like us uh, to do. So this sort of thing, uh, of course, uh, does not uh, help uh, at all. And it would be very good uh, if uh, we could do something about this. The second force that it would be impossible to ignore right now is the tendency to securitize every discussion to think about security and stability as trumping all sorts uh, of considerations. I can illustrate this uh, perhaps aptly by uh, after acknowledging the fact uh, that the government of the UK did accept an official visit and I came uh, in November last year to deal with the Northern Ireland issue here. Uh, that visit coincided uh, with the first uh, terrorist attacks in Paris of the recent past. And the very same night uh, that they happened, and I was having uh, discussions with the Ministry of Defense, a crucial point in the agreement <coughs> that had already been hammered out at uh, Stormont House was changed uh, by the government of the UK on the provision of information that is critical for resolving some of the cases that are more than 30 years old. And this led to the breakdown of the Stormont House agreement. Now, I am not um, at this point assessing the merits of the change in the position towards greater security screening. That's a longer conversation. But Descriptively, it is an example of the impact of the security of the securitization of these decisions in the transitional justice and human rights world, and one that I had the experience of witnessing as it was developing. And uh, finally, the last uh, point, uh, the last contextual point uh, that I think deserves uh, attention and where it would be very good uh, to have uh, more collaboration between human rights, uh, academics, uh, justice-related academics, uh, political theories, sociologists, etc., and policymakers is the very well-known phenomenon of the closing of civil space which is really ruining the possibility of pressing certain agendas that are never pressed spontaneously <coughs> by governments, that are unfailingly pressed primarily by civil society organizations, including all of those related to transitional justice work. I have never in my last 20 years working on this met a government that spontaneously said great, as part of my banner, I'm going to propose uh, a transitional justice policy. It's never happened. Governments come to this. They come to it under a great deal uh, of pressure. And that is pressure that stems primarily from the bottom up uh, uh, by uh, civil society. The horrible clampdown of civil society with more than 100 laws limiting civil society having been adopted uh, since 2012 in different parts of the world 
of course, from my standpoint, constitute a huge, huge obstacle in the way that uh, transition of justice will work in the future. And finally, and I will stop uh, mentioning uh, the following set of very concrete problems where I think a greater interaction between uh, academics and uh, policymakers uh, will help. Are the following. If someone asks me what is the greatest threat, the greatest challenge that transitional justice uh, work faces today, I have absolutely no doubt in mentioning one that in many ways stems from its success. Transitional justice as a concept, but particularly as a model, not the model that is uh, captured by the ridiculously long title of the mandate I <laughs> When people ask me, can you sign a guest book? I have to say, do you have 15 minutes? Well, <laughs> the title takes about 12. Uh, but it does have one advantage. It's fully descriptive. No? It gives you a sense of the four pillars. And I'm happy to discuss why the decision was made instead of uh, a uh, special mandate on transition justice uh, to create this unwieldy thing. Uh, but the idea of transitional justice has involved these four pillars, truth, justice, reparation, and guarantees of long returns. This is a model that took shape uh, in the Latin American uh, transitions of the Southern Cone, traveled to Central and Eastern Europe, from Central and Eastern Europe uh, very rapidly to South Africa, and the, after South Africa, it was disseminated very rapidly and very broadly. Now, if you think about it, in this trajectory, which of course is a mini capsule of a story <coughs> that deserves to be told in much more detail. In this uh, trajectory, despite the huge differences between uh, those sets of countries, there are certain things that they shared, which I think are absolutely fundamental and that we really keep in mind. First, these were highly institutionalized countries, both horizontally and vertically. And that meant the institutions of the state had the capacity to make themselves present in every corner of their state's uh, territories. The, it, of course, doesn't mean that it did. Chile didn't provide the same sets of services in Santiago as it did uh, in Patagonia. But not because they couldn't. This was, to a large extent, uh, a matter of choice. And this was, of course, true of the former Czechoslovakia and of Poland, but even of South Africa. Secondly, these were highly institutionalized countries vertically. That means that most of the important spheres of the relationship between uh, citizens and the institutions of the state were already regulated by means of law. And as in the previous case, that doesn't mean that all the relevant laws were equally enforced or equally developed. But it did mean that these were not countries with huge legal vacuums. And again, this was true of Chile and Argentina, former Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Hungary, of course, the, Ger the German Democratic Republic, but also of South Africa. 
Now, the second thing that they shared, uh, broadly speaking, which of course should be totally no surprising, is that these were countries that needed, after their transition, to redress human rights violations of a particular kind, namely the kind that correlates with the abusive exercise of state power. The post-authoritarian transitions were transitions in contexts of very high institutionalization at, that produced a certain type of violation. When you move from uh, that set of countries, even to some uh, of the older places where transitional justice, as we understand it, uh, was uh, applied, Sierra Leone and Liberia, where it is being applied uh, right now, or efforts are being made to apply it, DRC, CAR, Mali, the older cases of uh, Rwanda, Burundi, and uh, the countries in the, around the Great Lakes. But even those of you who know the story quite well would have realized that, that in this cycle that I described, I omitted two countries that fell precisely in between the Latin American countries of the Southern Cone and the Central and Eastern European countries that, as it turns out, were much more like the post-conflict uh, transitions rather than the post-authoritarian transitions, namely Guatemala and El Salvador, would realize the challenge that we are facing now. We are fond in the transition justice <coughs> world of saying that we have no cookie culture approach, that we take each case uh, on its own uh, merits. Sorry to say, bullshit. We do have uh, a cookie culture approach. Despite ourselves, no? we would, uh, we want to say, of course, we take uh, context seriously, etc., etc. But I have always found it especially suspicious that we travel from Santiago to, to Kinshasa, talking about transitional justice uh, recipes, large, with the same idea, and the same idea is embodied in the four pillars of the mandate and not just in the four pillars of the mandate, but in what economists, using an expression that I absolutely adore, namely isomorphic mimicry, we copy institutional forms and we take them from one to another, as we had done previously in a different domain with uh, anti-corruption commissions, of which there is a blueprint that is supposed to work very well in all countries of the world which of course there hasn't happened either. But we take the same model of an institutional embodiment and we carry it from place to place. So as most of you know, I am Colombian by birth. What is a truth commission in Colombia going to do? Colombia is a country, again, a bit more like the post-conflict rather than the post-authoritarian cases in which, uh, contrary to what happened in the post-authoritarian regimes, violence was not exercised uh, under a veil of obscurity and secrecy. Violence was exercised very openly. Colombia is a country that has had uh, an absolutely fabulous 
truth telling and truth seeking institution, the Center for Historical Memory that has operated for almost 10 years now, that has produced a series of absolutely brilliant uh, reports. So what is a truth commission in Colombia going to do? And mind you, I hasten to add that this is not to suggest a negative answer to that question, to suggest uh, the position that there is nothing for a truth commission in Colombia to do. It's just to suggest that the question needs to be explicitly posed. What are the needs that Colombia has with respect to truth telling? And what is the best institutional form to satisfy those needs? So the general point about uh, isomorphic mimicry is that we have become in the transitional justice world, as in many other worlds, obsessed uh, with uh, form, with institutional forms, rather than with the solution of a particular problem. And I think that this is a total distortion of the field. This is a field that was not born as an exercise in theory making. Madame Gorti, Eduardo Rawosi, and Carlos Nino in Argentina, who thought about uh, some of these things for the very first time, they had no blueprint that they were following. They didn't have uh, a complete theory of transitional justice that they were simply trying to unfurl that practically. But they were inventing the field uh, as they went along, trying to provide principled but pragmatic responses to very, very real problems that they found in a very specific setting. One that was characterized by two primary sets of constraints, namely the desire to continue the process of democratization, but at the same time, very severe security constraints. And my point is, I think that we needed to recover part of the pragmatic principle, the nature of transitional justice work, and to shed aside uh, the tendencies simply to replicate uh, uh, institutional uh, responses. I think that there is such a thing as too much uh, uh, obsession with uh, uh, standardization in the field and that we ought to be careful about uh, that. I don't want to talk much longer but I will just uh, mention list three things and uh, close there in terms of ongoing challenges. I mentioned this as the, the difference between post-authoritarian and post conflict transitions as one that we need to come to grips uh, with much better. I don't think that we know how to deal with the post-conflict transitions as well as we think and as well as we did with the post-authoritarian transitions. And if there is anything on which the future of the field will depend, I think it's this. It again is a perfect example of an area of work that needs, <coughs> calls for greater collaboration between people that work in different disciplines from different uh, perspectives. One of the things that it involves, for instance, 
is greater integration of different areas of policy intervention, including security and development. Because one of the consequences of this challenge of the confusion between post-authoritarian and post-conflict transitions has been the infinite expansion of the mandate of transitional justice work, fueled also by the lack of theoretical clarity about the boundaries of the field. So I am, of course, here, but it doesn't have to be this way, but uh, parenthetically, I do not mind declaring my philosophical predilections. I am a total Kantian, Habermasian, a defender of constitutional democracies in economic terms, neo-institutionalist. I believe very strongly that the economic growth isn't simply a matter of getting prices right, but also of getting the institutions uh, right. I have a left of center politics that lead me to support reformist agendas, and uh, as a consequence, particularly in countries that are weakly institutionalized and characterized by the desire to emerge from the legacies of conflict. I, of course, think that economic transformation in these areas is absolutely fundamental. Burundi, where I worked in last year intensively, is a country that has no labor market. So the alternative to being in government, I am not exaggerating, is poverty. And of course, once you face those choices, it is absolutely no miracle that uh, transitions, turnover in Burundi are so difficult. Uh, who wants to be in poverty when they have uh, a job and they have children to feed them? This is a country in which 65% of the population is malnourished, in which the total foreign direct investment in 2015 was $8 million, which I am sure is less than the income of the Starbucks where I get my coffee in New York, $8 million. And therefore, of course, doing transitional justice work in that area will require a fundamental change of socioeconomic uh, uh, conditions. In 2009, the total gross per capita income of the Afghan government was $9. So think about this. The Afghan government had $9 per citizen for a year to invest in everything, infrastructure, debt, education, health, etc. <coughs> what do you do in the transitional justice world when you face uh, constraints uh, of this sort? This is a very serious uh, question. And the expansion of the mandate to say transitional justice institutions should not only perform the duties that were traditionally associated with them, but also play a significant role in fundamentally changing socioeconomic imbalances in a country, if that is done without any functional analysis, in other words, analysis that shows how the existing transitional justice institutions 
would be capable of delivering such a result. And remember, a result that, of course, I endorse. I think that it is much more responsible to think about the linkages between transitional justice institutions and policies that have the tools to deliver those sorts of results than to expect uh, transitional justice institutions uh, to do this. At the very least, I think it is a mark of responsibility to engage in that sort of functional analysis for two reasons fundamentally. I think that there is a peculiar form of cruelty to expect uh, to generate expectations of victims, to get results that you have absolutely no reason to believe that you will be able to deliver, because these are people who have uh, suffered already. And secondly, because in a transitional situation, particularly when you are dealing with fragile institutions, it does no one any favors, particularly incipient institutions that are trying to get some legitimacy, that are trying to get some grips on a fundamental social reality to set them up for failure, a failure that was absolutely predictable to begin with. So on the expansion of the mandate and the recent emphasis on, for example, the transformative nature of transitional justice institutions, I want to say I am totally in favor of the agenda. I just said that all of us are responsible enough to engage in that sort of conversation, thinking about whether the tools that we have in the transitional justice world are sufficient to deliver the results. Because otherwise, I think that we can do a great deal of damage, and that in this route, in 10 years, no one will have any reason to take us uh, seriously. I am very sorry, I have spoken already quite a bit. Let me stop there so that we can have a conversation now. <laughs> and uh, some of the other points uh, that I wanted to make, uh, perhaps we can uh, touch upon. Thank you very much once again uh, for your willingness to listen. And it is uh, a huge pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.